Good morning, everybody. Grab a seat. We're back in the book of Zephaniah. Uh, You can turn there. We're in the midst of our series in the book of Zephaniah. Um, You guys will have to advance because I don't have a clicker. Uh, On that day is the title of our series. And um, it's talking about the day when Christ comes back, the day when the end of the world comes, and then what comes after that. Um, Most of us are thinking about on that day this week, or we're thinking about that in terms of when school starts back, or when we have a day off coming up in the week, or when we're going on vacation, or when family's coming to visit, there's the question of on that day, I've got to get all this stuff ready because family's coming, or I need to get all the stuff purchased that, for my dorm room, or whatever it is, there's this sense in our lives of on that day, and Zephaniah is reminding the people of God in the midst of their the history that we've looked at, which we'll see in a second, that there is a day coming that they can trust in, that even though it seems like it's been a long time, that God isn't maybe coming through as they expected, there's a day coming. The history that we've laid out before is about 136 years that we've kind of walked through, right? This is how we get to this place and kind of where Zephaniah fits in, that the northern and southern kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of Israel split into the north Israel and the south Judah, After Solomon, his son, and one of his generals split the kingdom. It was a mess. They were divided. The northern kingdom was allowed to split away, but God asked them not to create new idols, not to create new worship, but to still obey the Old Testament, travel to Jerusalem. He understood that there was a division there. They didn't do that. They created their own system of worship, their own way of doing things. They kind of abandoned God. And actually, in the entire history of the northern kingdom, they never had a righteous king, not one. And then they were taken away into captivity into Assyria. God raised up the Assyrian nation, kind of took his hands off of Israel, and the Assyrians came in and destroyed and annihilated the northern kingdom. And he warned them through multiple prophets that this was coming. He actually warned Assyria to treat his people well, which they didn't do. And since they didn't, God raised up Babylon, we'll see in a minute, to destroy Assyria. Hezekiah becomes king. Hezekiah is kind of a mixed king, but finally repents. After Hezekiah reigns for 29 years, Manasseh comes in. Manasseh reigns for 55 years. He is the most wicked king in the southern kingdom's history. And because of what Manasseh did and the previous sins of the the people, but specifically Manasseh and the people following Manasseh, God said, okay, I'm done. Justice is coming. Like, I have to carry out justice on the evil and wicked that Manasseh did. It is so wicked. I can't turn away from this and turn away from how you've polluted the land. Manasseh repents. God gives them a reprieve before that day comes. As a result, Manasseh dies. Amnon comes to power. Super wicked. Again, the son of Manasseh. He only lasts two years and he's killed. He's murdered because he's so bad. Josiah takes the throne at age eight. He reigns for 31 years. And Josiah brings the greatest revival in one of the greatest moments in nearly 100 years of, of prosperity for the people of Judah, even though they're still being oppressed by the Assyrians. But the Assyrians are distracted because now the Babylonians and the wars that are going on, there's all these wars around them. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medes, there's kind of a power play, Egypt. So while they're all fighting, Israel's allowed to kind of prosper more than they ever have. Josiah leads a revival, and during that time is when Zephaniah becomes a prophet. And when Zephaniah speaks, and we looked at this and we'll see it again, but when he speaks, when he tells the people, you've got to remember, they wouldn't have listened because they're like, what? Things are going well. All the other nations are fighting. We're safe. We're doing pretty decent. And he's like, there's a day coming 
and you guys aren't being well, you're wicked. And so as a result of that, Assyria is later defeated. Necho of Egypt kills Josiah. Egypt's defeated. Babylon then conquers Judah. And God's people are taken away into slavery for 70 years. They're brought back to the land one time in their history. And then now they're back in the land, the 1940s. And it's just a mess of obey God, disobey God, idols, idolatry that we've seen And God always telling them, look, a day is coming. And he's trying to give them hope. He's not just warning them with, I've got to punish you. He's telling you there's a day coming when this mess of obey, disobey, and all this is going to disappear. The first week we looked at Zephaniah. We looked at the fact that it says the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah. We talked about the idea of how do we determine if it's a word from God. The son of Cushi, son of Gelediah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Amnon, king of Judah. His message is, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. And so Zephaniah is not just saying, I'm going to punish you. He's saying, everybody's going to get equal justice, which is what we long for, right? We talk about equal justice all the time. And Zephaniah says, look, yes, there's a justice coming each for what they've done, but there's a total justice that's going to come when I sweep everything away like I did with Noah. Remember who Zephaniah Zephaniah is. He's a Cushite. Most likely he's black. The Cushites were black. They were from Ethiopia. So here is probably a black prophet in a not black society giving a message that everything's going to be swept away. He was also of the line of Hezekiah. He was of the line of David. So he was also a privileged person who was standing up against the narrative of the day that everything was going to be okay. And he was speaking out even against his own family and against what had been done throughout history. And he had to because it was the word of the Lord. And he said, this isn't going to be good. And remember his name. His name means Yahweh has hidden. Now, it doesn't mean God is hiding from them It may mean that God has hidden a day. He's hidden a time. He's hidden blessings and he's hidden punishment. And it's kind of he's holding it back. It's hidden or held back. Last week we looked at the fact that in 2.1, Zephaniah says, gather yourselves together. Gather together undesirable nation. That there's nothing that we have to offer God that's desirable, but he calls us to gather to him. He gives forgiveness and grants forgiveness through Jesus and through his sacrifice He says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. And so we talked about the importance of gathering and seeking the Lord together, which so many abandon today. We gather when it's convenient. We seek when it's convenient. If it works out for me, it's about what works, because that's what I want to do. Today, what I want to talk about is a very, very important subject. It's one that I don't like. It's one that hits home for me as I've thought about this all week, and that is wait for me. See, Zephaniah has talked about the fact that things are going to be swept away. He says when you see bad things coming, when you know it's not going to work out well, don't try to just disappear and hide out and be on your own. You need to still gather and seek the Lord together in the midst of what you know is coming. And then he says, while you're gathering, you've got to continue to remember that you've got to wait on me. You can't do this yourself. You can't make this happen. You have to wait for me and that there is a proper way to wait. 
This is going to be a good message for you this morning, I promise, because I learned a lot from it in my own heart of like, how do I really wait on the Lord? Because God's people wait terribly when you read the scriptures. They are terrible at waiting. They get impatient, they sin, they make demands, they treat people like dirt, because I got to have it now, because God isn't coming through. And Zephaniah is like, don't do that. Wait, he says, therefore wait for me, this is the Lord's declaration. And you're like, yeah, but I've been gathering, I've been seeking, I've been obeying you, and it's not working. Okay, we'll wait a little bit longer. Maybe it's not supposed to work for you. Maybe it's supposed to work for your child or your grandchild or your great-grandchild. Or maybe it's supposed to work for the spiritual children because you never have children that God's going to raise up through you and not you so much. See, that's what God's trying to get them to see. And it's not wait for what you want. See, the object of your wait will drive your daily decisions. Let me say that again. The object of your wait will drive your daily decisions. And God says, wait for me. Don't wait for your blessing. Don't wait for your promise. Don't wait for all the other stuff. Wait for me, the relationship. Because it's connection to me that brings everything else. So what do you do when distress comes? When it seems like things are being swept swept away? Do you gather and seek the Lord? Do you go hide and leave? Do we wait, and while we're waiting, we try to avoid the things that God has clearly commanded because we're in hurry, in a hurry to get the things that God doesn't even say we're supposed to have? Doesn't even command, doesn't say this is what, like, I can be that way. We, we look at things and say, well, it's not wrong, it's permissible, I can have this, so I'll have it. Well, maybe God wants you to wait to get it. Have you prayed? Have you sought counsel? Or did you just run out because everybody else has one and everybody else is doing it? Or have you really prayed and sought the Lord? Do you make up blessings and say, well, obviously if God's giving it to me and it's in front of me, then he doesn't want me to wait anymore. That's kind of how we got in the mess of the Garden of Eden and eating the fruit. There's a tree God created. He obviously wants you to have it and he wouldn't have created it. It's right there. Grab it. It won't kill you. Touch it. See? Good. Take a bite. Oh, wonderful. Oops. And that's how we still make decisions today in most churches. We make decisions based on circumstances and how it feels and how it looks. And well, God must have made it. And he's given me this wide open door. I got to walk right up to the tree in the garden. There were no bears, no lions, nothing kept me from it. No angels to stab me. So obviously this must be God's will. And I've waited a long time. We don't know how long Adam and Eve were in the garden and walked around that tree. Thousand years, hundred thousand years, millions of years. We don't know. Was it a day? Was it a moment? I don't know. Regardless, Adam and Eve decided not to wait and they decided not to gather to God, not to seek him and ask his opinion and they were swept away out of the garden forever and here we still are waiting for the Lord. You see, waiting is not natural. Waiting is not natural. It is a learned discipline. If you want to see that waiting is not natural, watch some two-year-olds. And put some things out and tell them to wait to have them and leave the room for a while. Waiting is not in our nature. We want what we want, when we want it, and we'll get any way we can. And if we feel like we've been really good, you know what happens if you do leave a two-year-old in the room and they've really been waiting and waiting? What's the first question a two- or three-year-old's going to ask when you enter back into the room and told them to wait and they have waited? 
They're probably going to be sitting in a chair looking at the thing they want when you walk back in. Probably with their hand like this close to it. And when you walk back in, they're going to be, can I have it now? Now? Can I have it? No. Well, then why'd you put it there? That's so cruel. Because I'm testing you. You have the entire house around you, the entire outdoors, the entire world for you to have whatever you want. And I've told you, you can have that, but you need to wait. And all you can do is be consumed with the thing you're staring at. Stop. Seek me. Wait on me. Don't wait on the donut. Don't wait on the drink. Don't wait on the toy. Wait on me, God says. And we get distracted by all the stuff God gives us, and that's the important stuff to us. And then you wonder why he's so upset, like he's upset with the people. I've blessed you. I've given you all these things. I thought that would help you, and all you've done is turn from me, not wait on me. Over and over again in the scriptures, and the purpose of the scriptures is to say, remember so that you can wait well. Because if you don't remember, you won't wait. If you don't remember me, if you don't know the stories, from Malachi to Matthew, the old, last Old Testament book to the first gospel is 400 years. 400 years. We haven't even been a country that long. Not even close. And the people had to wait for the Messiah. Jesus was born, and it took him 30 years to start the most important ministry ever laid in the creation and foundation of the world and universe, and he took 30 years to wait. To wait for his father to say, now's the time. And how did Jesus wait? He was obedient. He did everything God said. He never broke a single command. He did every dietary law, every time rule that was in the Sabbath. He did every temple rule. He did every festival rule. He obeyed everything the Old Testament asked to a perfect, perfect perfection. The only human to ever do it for 30 years. And he did it with complete and utter joy because he couldn't wait to see his father face to face again while he was in his body, his human body. Which is, he says, that's what I want you to do, is to have that kind of passion and that kind of patience. Let me ask you, if you're the son of God, if you're the most powerful person to ever exist, the most powerful being to ever exist, and all of creation the Father gave to you as a gift, it's yours. All of creation, Colossians says, was given to you, and you can fix everything. How hard would it be to wait 30 years? How hard would it be to wait 2,000 years while people defame you, turn their back on you? You want to know why God can wait, why Jesus can wait? Because he knows that he gets to save some. There will be some who turn back to him, which is why he continues to wait. Zephaniah 3.1, here's where we're at this morning. Zephaniah picks up the message again and he says, woe. Anytime you see a woe in scripture, Zephaniah, it's a big deal. God's saying, woe, this is awful. He says, woe to the city that's rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. That's like every city, right? Where's a righteous city? He says, she has not obeyed. She's not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in Yahweh. She has not drawn near to her God. 
he looks and he says, you don't obey. You don't accept discipline. You get mad about it and cry and whine. You don't trust Yahweh. You trust your own instincts and feelings and everything else. You don't draw near to God. You draw near to everything else to find answers. You'll draw near and leverage money, time, everything. And it's hard for you to have a quiet time. Because you don't want to draw near to God. Because I don't know how to trust Yahweh. I don't think I want his discipline. And it's hard to obey him. Boy, God's got a, what a wonderful relationship to be in when someone comes to you with that attitude. You're so hard to obey. You're so hard to listen to. And you're so hard to trust. And when I draw near to you, it just kind of stinks. That's a great relationship. And yet, this is all that God did. It's what Jesus did. Jesus came to a rebellious city. He obeyed. He accepted the discipline of God on our behalf. He paid our price. He trusted in his heavenly father and he drew near to God constantly. Then he says, the princes within her, that's the city, are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. So four things, princes, judges, prophets, and priests. Tune in for a second. These four things, if you become a believer in Jesus Christ and you're adopted into the family of God, and what he told his people in the Old Testament was that he was going to make them a people and a nation of princes, judges, prophets, and priests. If you are a believer, the Bible says, we're going to look at a bunch of scriptures and we're just going to fly through them. The Bible says that God's desire for you is to understand how to be a prince, how to be a judge, how to be a prophet, and how to be a priest. Because that's who he is and that's who he wants you and his people to be in the world. And to do it the way he asks us to do it, not the way we define how to judge. We define how to be a prince. Jesus was the prince of princes of princes and kings of kings of kings. And for 30 years, he worked construction and lived in Nazareth. Is that really what a prince, judge, prophet, priest looks like? Because that's not how I would picture it. It's why they crucified him. There's no way you can be those four things. See, we're judging you. We're putting you on the cross. Oh, no, you're not. I'm dying on this cross to be the final judgment so that from this point forward, no one has an excuse. It's over. You either embrace this or you're done. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can get to the Father. No, no one can be these things unless you go through me. You see, he says, the princes war, the judges are wolves, they devour everything and they're never satisfied. The prophets are they're reckless and treacherous. The priests profane the sanctuary, they do violence to the law, so they, they use the law, but there's no mercy or grace or measured justice in the law with the priests. That's what he's talking about. And this is the reality of the human condition. And you ask yourself, how can God still be with these people? Look at what he says. He's like, he's still with them. He's still warning them. See, God wants you to understand your identity. And if you don't understand your identity, if you don't understand your identity in Christ, priest, judge, prophet, or a prince, judge, prophet, and priest, if you don't understand what that looks like, people and the enemy will manipulate those things to get you to do what he wants you to do. You deserve to be a prince. God said so. And you're not being treated like a prince. 
She's not treating you like a prince, and you're a prince. She's a princess, and I'm a princess, and my, my man isn't treating me like a princess. Judge. I'm called to judge, and you're doing it wrong. And you reciprocate it back. Oh, no, 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 I'm the righteous judge. All these things can be so twisted. This semester, I use main theme for their whole semester is identity and identification. I guarantee you they're not talking about prince, judge, prophet, and priest. They're going to tell you how great you are and how everything you do is righteous and whatever you choose and we just want to support you and we want to get behind whatever you want to do until you don't pay your bursar bill and they kick you out of college. Well, I didn't want to pay it. And I don't think I should pay it. I think it should be free. And I think I should just show up and get a piece of paper that says I'm awesome. And I, I don't want to take a test. You see, we love to define identities for people so that then we can use them. Versus saying, no, your identity are these things. In Christ. In God and what he has done. And if you don't have a strong identity, you will be tossed around like a rag doll. And when things are hard and come at you, you won't know what to do. Can I just tell you, our responsibility as believers is to tell people about the identity they can really have. And the identification with God Almighty that he seeks to have with them. He goes on to say this. Peter says this about princes, judges, prophets, and priests. First Peter 2.1 says, so rid yourself. So how are we to act as these princes and judges and prophets and priests as we wait because we're not allowed to exercise our rights as princes, judges, prophets, and priests fully yet because Jesus hasn't come back. What do we do? First Peter 2.1, so rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Yeah, if we rid ourselves of those things, that makes for a good priest. Makes for a good prophet. Makes for a good judge. If we don't rid ourselves of these things, makes for a bad prophet. Makes for a bad prince. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow by it for your salvation since you've tasted that the Lord is good. He refers back to that idea of grabbing the fruit. Garden of Eden, taste, see that God is holding out on you, Satan said. And Peter is saying, no, 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 take that fruit and taste and see if God isn't more than anything we've ever eaten, done, or seen ever. Dive in. And he says, coming to him, a living stone. We're just stones. Rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. The stones that don't fit and you throw out, God says, I'll use those to build what I want to build. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house. Look at this. For a holy priesthood to do what as holy priest? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you can't offer spiritual sacrifices if you don't know Jesus because you don't have a relationship with God. You're trying to earn it. And if you're trying to earn it, then you are God and you're buying him and he doesn't get paid off. Versus surrendering to him and he pays the debt and invites you into his family to be his child. It's a totally different relationship. And he says, I want you to offer spiritual sacrifices, which means we can offer worldly sacrifices. 
that aren't spiritual at all. They might look spiritual. They might look like we're doing God's stuff, just like all the people of Israel in Josiah's time and what we read about. They were doing godly stuff. It's not like that they burned the temple down. They were still using it. But then they were sacrificing to all these other gods too. They were doing all these other things in addition to the heart that God asked them for. And so he says, if you're going to be a holy priesthood, you need to offer spiritual sacrifices. So how do we wait? Well, we rid ourselves of these things. As we wait, we offer spiritual sacrifices. But look, then Paul, uh, Peter doubles down. He says, so he talks about priesthood. Then he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now he's talking about being a prince. You're royalty. If you know Jesus Christ and you have surrendered your life to him and said, I am done, he says you have been invited to be a part of the royal family. The problem is you're not like Amnon and Manasseh royalty who did what they wanted and got what they wanted. You're Zephaniah royalty where you look different. You're you're not like everybody else. You've been created uniquely and God has a message he wants you to speak and it's probably even going to sting your own family. He says, you are a chosen. You've been chosen. This wasn't your decision. This wasn't you running after God because you didn't want God. You wanted to have a little partnership with God that he gives you stuff and you keep him at a distance. No, 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 no. You have been chosen to be a part of this family and you've made a choice. And he says, I want you to be a holy priest, a holy prophet, a holy judge, a holy prince. Why? So that you can declare the praises of the one who called you while you wait. That's it. You can talk about how great he is. Not how great the thing you're waiting for is. I can't wait to the day till I'm married. I can't wait to the day till I have kids. I can't wait to the day and I graduate and I get that job. I can't wait to the day. Can I just tell you? Every time that comes, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> talk to someone married. Talk to someone with children. Talk to someone who thought they got the dream job and then lost it. There is no satisfaction in waiting for those things if you're not waiting with a heart for God and a vision for him. He says, you have to understand that you live in darkness. We live in darkness and we need his light. You have to gather to him. You have to seek the light. If you seek the light, you will find it, Jesus said. He goes on and says, once you were not a people. You were a nobody. You're a nothing. Yeah, that's why I use doing identity and identification because they know that so many students are so depressed, so anxious, and so miserable. The suicide rate is higher than it's ever been and only going up for people 18 to 25. COVID has destroyed us because we stopped gathering. We stopped seeking. We saw things being swept away and we didn't wait properly. We just gave people free stuff. And God in heaven is like, I have told you how to do this, but you won't listen. He looks and he says, you weren't a people, but if you surrender to me, you are God's people. And you have not received, and you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, Peter says, because of what God has done. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain, here it is, how do we wait? To abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. There is a war that you're involved in. You are a prince, you are a judge, you are a prophet and a priest at war. 
Now, does that mean we're walking around mad and blah? No. That's not always the way to fight wars. When Jesus came, did he walk around as a prince, judge, prophet, and priest like that? No, he was a friend of sinners. He laid down his life for people. Because he knew that there was a day coming that on that day he would be resurrected. And he knew there would be an ascension and then someday on that day he would come back and make everything right. So he could wait because he could depend and believe on the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that will always do exactly what they say they will do. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, that's unbelievers, so that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, they get what they want, they don't wait. They will, by observing your good works, glorify God on that day of their visitation. You see, someday every person is going to have a visit with God. God's really good about sending prophets, princes, judges, and priests. Have you read the Bible? He sent a priesthood in Levi, He sent prophets. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, and the list goes on. He he sent princes, kings, David, Solomon, all these kings. He sent an entire book of judges, Samson, being one. Shamgar, do you know who Shamgar is? Yeah, see, that's one of the judges. He sent these judges, Gideon. See, God keeps sending us his messengers, and he calls us to be his messengers that will glorify him instead of glorifying ourselves, glorifying everything else. And he's saying, where are you? Peter says, look, this is the plan. So what kind of princes and sons are we as we wait? Well, we're to proclaim him. Paul said it this way, so then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh. Remember, Peter said, while you wait, your job is to crucify the flesh. It's to get the flesh out of the way so that you can offer spiritual sacrifices. You can surrender more of yourself to God. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. If we continue to do what God says not to do, if we continue to... Ignore the Old Testament law and how he says to handle government and how he says to do things. You know what happens? Things get worse. It's like, duh. Like, it's not rocket science. You look at it and you go, okay, yeah, it's going to get worse because we're not obeying God. New Testament says if you don't work, you don't eat. When was the last time you heard a church preach on that when it talks about how do we serve the homeless and those that are poor and hungry? Paul said in the church, if you claim to be a believer and you're in the church and you don't work, you don't get fed. Now, what does work mean? Now, that's something we can talk about. I'm not talking about holding a nine-to-five job every day. No, 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 no. That didn't exist back then for the most part. But do you have a willingness to want to work and give yourself to crucify your own flesh for others, to give up your comfort, your desire, your nap so that you can serve other people? goes on he says but if you but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live it's amazing that how life-giving it is to give yourself away and isn't it awesome that we love to watch the videos and the news stories of people who give themselves away unconditionally to save someone else 
They risk their own life. We love those stories, but we don't really like the idea of the guy that waits to give his life by giving it every day for 70 years to provide for a church and provide for a wife and provide for a family and grandkids and so on and so forth. We all want to be heroes, but we don't want to be long-burning heroes. We want instantaneous heroism. God says, I want you to be a hero every day. I give you new mercies, and every day you wake up. I want you to be a prince. I want you to be a priest. I want you to be a judge. I want you to be a prophet every day. That's who you are. That's who I created you to be, if you know me. You've been adopted into the family, and this is how the family does business. Welcome to the family. And you can take joy in it. You can have confidence in it. And even when it's hard, it doesn't mean you don't shed tears. Jesus shed tears. doesn't mean you don't struggle. Jesus struggled. None of that. It just means that you can wait because you know that you can gather with the body, seek him, and it will turn out well. He goes on and says, all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. So what are you being led by? Do you truly long to be led by God's spirit? Do you even know what the spirit leads people to do? there's a lot of confusion over what the Spirit does, if you haven't noticed in Christianity. The one thing that's constant that Jesus said about the Spirit is the Spirit will come to be your counselor, to lead you to the truth, and specifically the truth about me, Jesus says, the Word. He goes on, he says, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery. In other words, that's not the relationship you have with God. You're not a slave to God. It's not that kind of relationship. Yes, we are slaves unto God. There's other places where the Bible talks about that. that we, but it's more than that. It's a willingness to give ourselves, to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. For Jesus, or for, for uh, Paul to say this and for Jesus to have said it when he used the word Abba was radical. The Bible that you have There were scribes that hid the name of God because they were so scared to use the name Yahweh that they put little consonants on it because they didn't want people to misuse the name of God in the Old Testament. They felt that distant from God that they put little asterisks to kind of, oh, we want to be careful that we don't say the real name of God. Can you imagine that? Imagine being like going to your dad and not calling him by his real, like, Jesus and Paul here are like, Abba, Father, means like Daddy, Father. It implies a closeness, a love, a nearness, a respect. It's not like, hey, Dad. No, no, no. It's my Daddy, Father. I can come to you as Daddy and worship you because I'm nothing without you. It's a beautiful picture of our identity. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. Listen, the enemy's gonna try to get you to doubt that you're God's child. You're gonna be a terrible prince. You're gonna be a terrible prophet. You're gonna be a terrible priest. You're gonna be a terrible judge. I promise. Every one of God's people were. Have you read the Bible? David was called a man after God's own heart. He committed adultery, murdered a guy, caused a famine. I mean, is sleeping with a maiden at the end of his life to get comfort. God didn't say, yeah, and that's all good. I want you to do all that. Model him. That's not what he said. God said, that's not good. Spirit testifies that we're God's children, and David never doubted that he was God's child, and he kept coming back to the Father and said, Daddy, I'm sorry. Forgive me. 
And God continued to extend his forgiveness. And if children, then we're also heirs. We're princes. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. There's that weight. He says, we are co-heirs with him, but we're going to suffer. You want to know why we have to suffer as princes? Because Jesus suffered as a prince while he was in his earthly body. You know when he stopped suffering? When he got out of his earthly body. There's no way around it. And you can doubt that, and you can say, I don't know if I want to believe in a God that allows suffering. Um, You're still going to suffer in the body you're in. Did you know that? You just have no hope. That's miserable. At least I have hope for it. It's worth it, because I know that his glory doesn't compare to my sickness and my getting old and my flabbiness and all the other things that happen. It just doesn't compare. This body's going to be done away with. There's going to be a new body that comes. There's, going to, there's, a God, there's an Abba Father who's going to forgive me, dust me off. Are there consequences? Absolutely. That's what Zephaniah is telling the people. What's interesting to me is that our enemy will try to get us not to wait while our God constantly tells us you better consider the cost and consider the wait. Consider the cost. There is a cost to following me. There's also a cost to not following me. There's a cost to not waiting, and there's also a cost to waiting. There's no way to get around a cost. The question is, is it worth the price? See, that's the question as we wait. See, we're always in a hurry to alleviate our hunger, alleviate our thirst, alleviate our pain. We can't wait. We see on that day, and then we don't wait well. Well, on that day, Jesus is coming back. In the meantime, I'm going to do everything I want to do and see the world, do whatever I want to do while I wait for Jesus to come back because I got my ticket punched for heaven. I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. I don't find that in this verse. Zephaniah verse 5 says this, The righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fall, fail at night or at dawn. Zephaniah just lists all this wickedness of the princes, of the judges, of the prophets, and the priests. And then he says, and God is still with you. He's still there, doing the right thing, trying to get your attention. He hasn't left. Maybe that's where you're at in your life. You're struggling to wait. You're struggling for all these things and you think, well, God's abandoned me. He doesn't really care about me because he's not giving me what I'm waiting for. It's not coming fast enough. And why don't you just pause? Why don't you just pause and recognize that you don't deserve anything and neither do I. And the fact that I even have a relationship with him and have people that I can have a relationship with who know him is a miracle. And that he doesn't do wrong and he applies justice. He is the only perfect prophet, priest, prince, and judge. He goes on and says this in Revelation. It says, and they sang a new song. Remember, the purpose of our wait is to declare his praises. At the end of time, when everything comes down, you find heaven singing a new song. They say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open it. They're excited to read the word. 
They've been waiting for the final word, the scroll to be open. They're like, we've read all the Bible. We've been studying it the whole time. We've been waiting on you to come back. We recite it all the time up here in heaven. It's all the time being sung, all the time being spoken of. It's so wonderful. It teaches us about you. This is awesome. But there's that one scroll that hasn't been opened yet. And man, do we want that. Do we want to read that? We've been seeking all this and there's answers we don't have. And I think that scroll has the crazy answers I'm looking for. Just not yet. And so they're singing and they're like, finally, the closed scroll is going to be open. Do you realize that when the people were exiled to, to, uh, to Babylon, they lost the scroll of Jeremiah that told them they were going to be delivered in 70 years? They lost it. They were so upset about what they didn't have and what they lost in the depression, they just lost the scrolls of Jeremiah. And one day, Daniel found them. And Daniel opened the scroll. He's like, there's a scroll. It's from a prophet. It's from Jeremiah. I remember that guy. What's he got to say? Oh my goodness, we need to get the people ready. 70 years is coming pretty soon. And so Daniel dedicated his life to making sure the people were getting ready and believing God for when he said he was going to come. Most of the time, God doesn't tell us when he's going to show up. This time, Daniel's like, oh my goodness, he actually told us exactly. And it happened exactly as the Lord said. When Babylon was defeated by Persia, God raised up Ruth, he raised up all these other people, or not Ruth, sorry, Esther, he raised up all these other people, and by God's incredible grace with Esther and Nehemiah, the people came back to the promised land 70 years exactly to the day that God said it would happen. And that's just not our Christian or Jewish history, that's Babylonian and Persian history. Then he says, the reason you can open the scroll, the reason you can understand the word, the reason you can sing when everything's a mess and we see all this judgment being poured out in Revelation, he says, because you were slaughtered. You were willing to wait and you were willing to give up your life and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. They will be the judges, they will be the prophets, they will be the priests, they will be the princes, and it's finally going to happen, and the scroll's been opened, and the rights have been given. He goes on, he says this. In Acts 1.6, Jesus is speaking because we look at Revelation and we go, well, I want that now. I want to open the scroll now. It's just not time. We have to wait. He goes on and he says, so when they had come together, they gathered. Remember, gather and seek. Jesus had been swept away, died, and come back to life. They were wondering if they were going to be swept away like Jesus. They just saw Jesus crucified and come back to life. I don't know about you, but if I was following Jesus, saw him get crucified and come back to life, I'm thinking, wow, I can get killed four or five times and keep coming back to life. I'm going to be the ultimate soldier. It's going to be awesome. We're just going to slay people and they're going to like, we're just going to pop back up and be like, hey, we're here. And I remember Ezekiel and the dry bones in the Old Testament. Like God brings people, this We got an army that's indestructible. We're going to come back to life. And then when they try to kill us, we can just disappear like Jesus does. He walks through doors. He's like, ah, missed me. And then I reappear. That's what you would have been thinking if you were the disciples. 
That would have been your mentality. Don't think it wouldn't have been. And that's what you would have been looking for. I want to be that guy. I want to be that superhero. I want to be able to appear and disappear. And I can, I can never get sick and never die. And no one can kill me. And I'm a god. Woohoo! Welcome to the whole Marvel Universe. Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? <laughs> Who are these guys? They're Israelites. Are you restoring the kingdom to me right now? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods the Father is set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come on you. Ha ha. Da, 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 and you'll be my martyrs in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Dun, dun, dun. Wait, wait, and the martyr just, but then we're going to come back to life, right? Like, yeah, we're going to get martyred, but then we're going to pop back up again. He goes on, he says, after this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight, and they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going. Then behold, two men in white clothing stood behind them. Picture the scene. He whoosh, whoosh. He just told them to do what? Read it. What did he tell them to do? Yeah. He told them to wait. Earlier, he said, you're going to wait. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So he told them, you need to wait for the Holy Spirit. They are in the season between Passover and Pentecost. God's people have been celebrating 50 days of waiting since they were delivered out of Egypt into the promised land through the wilderness thousands of years ago. This was the period of waiting when they waited from the time of Passover when they were delivered out of slavery to the time when the Holy Spirit would come, i.e. the Torah was given. In the Old Testament, it was Passover and then scrolls. Torah was given. They waited on, for Moses. Remember, he went up on the mountain, got the Ten Commandments, brought it down. And what are they doing? We weren't waiting very well, so we made a golden calf and we're worshiping. We couldn't wait and count the Omar to wait for you to come down. The Holy Spirit brings the word. That's what it brings. Jesus is taken up and these guys are standing there. They're supposed to be celebrating Pentecost, not standing on the mountain looking into the sky. Jesus is like, you're Israelites. Go celebrate. Get ready. Count the Omar. Like, this is what we've been doing for thousands of years. Just do it. Well, this is new, though. We saw you disappear and you said, this is what you've always done. You've always waited for the Holy Spirit to bring the word. Go wait. And look at what these guys say. This is beautiful. And they said, <laughs> the two angels, people in white that appear out of nowhere say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Why? Why do you keep looking for something when you have all the Bible, all the word, you, you know what your mission is? Go wait. Gather together. You know what happens on Pentecost? It says, while they were gathered together seeking the Lord, Counting the Omar down, the Holy Spirit appeared. So while they were obeying dumb Old Testament laws that don't apply anymore because Jesus came, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, shows up and transforms them. He goes on and says this. 
Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. He says, you know, the Lord is in your midst, but one of the problems is, is you have been taught that when you do wrong, you don't feel any shame. There's no shame. There's no repentance. He goes, that's a problem. As you wait, you need to understand you're going to fail. You're going to struggle. It's going to be hard. That's going to happen. But could you please just have a softened heart enough to come to me and ask forgiveness? To feel the shame of failing as a prophet, a priest, a judge, and a prince, and just come to me and say, I'm sorry, this isn't who I am, and what I did is not my identity, and I know that because you've told me, and so I'm going to believe your promises, I'm going to believe that I'm a part of your family, I'm going to believe in you because of what Jesus did, not what I've done, and I'm going to surrender myself to you again, please help me. And then you get the other prophets and priests, and you get the other judges, and the other princes around you and princesses, and you help one another. God says, I've cut off nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I've laid waste to their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I thought, I thought that if I showed you the other nations and what my power and ability could do to them, that you would certainly fear me and accept correction. I was hoping you wouldn't become prideful when I showed you my wrath. And I held it back from you. And you wouldn't think, yeah, reason God's killing all those people is because I'm awesome. Because I'm so righteous. I'm such a great prince and prophet, judge and priest. And God just wants me to do more of my prophet, prince and prophet, judge stuff that I do. He goes on, he says, then her dwelling place would not have been cut off based on all that I had allocated to her. I'm cutting you off from access because you're such a horrible prince. You're such a horrible priest. I can't give you access to the goods until you repent. Goes on and he says, however, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Zephaniah is like, you guys know that God has blessed you. He has taken you through the revival of Hezekiah, the revival of Manasseh, the revival of Josiah. And you're still corrupt. You still won't do simple. You still won't wait for me. Zephaniah goes on, and this is where he picks up in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me. You are corrupt. You're a mess. Everything's being destroyed, but I am telling you, you can wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder. And we're still waiting for that day. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. Remember, we're to wait giving praise and glory to God. And if we don't wait and give praise and glory to God, then God gets pretty jealous about his glory. He goes on and he says, For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples, so that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him with a single purpose. A single purpose. Can I just tell you, so many of us are chasing so many other purposes that we don't chase the singular purpose of Abba Father because we don't know our identity. We don't understand who we are and we get distracted and 
the enemy comes and tells us of some other purposes that we could have and we chase them. And you know what's awesome? We have the entire Bible to show us that God in his mercy continues to extend forgiveness and hope. That Jesus still came. He didn't like quit in Zephaniah and be like, okay, I'm done with you. (laughs) It's a beautiful thing. So let me ask you, do you tend to declare the praises of God when you wait? Do you tend to declare the glory of God when you're waiting? I don't. Jay can testify to it. He was in the car yesterday with me as someone was looking in the mirror, their face while the light was turning. I didn't praise God. I cursed the person in front of me. Pay attention. Wake up. You want to know why? Because I shouldn't have to wait. How dare you pause my life, Mr. Man, in front of me? How dare you think you have control over this being, this prince, this prophet, this, this, this judge that has so much important things to do today that you got in my way? It's a subtle thing, but boy, does it expose my heart. And that's who we are who I am if I'm not careful and I have to repent and I have to come back and I have to think about it and I have to let it bother me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about it. It bothered me. The rest of the day, I'm bothered by it. Like, why am I that way? Why can't I just, Lord, something's in his teeth. I pray he finds it. We praise you. Amen. Like, I don't know. I hope his hair gets fixed because it may be really bad and he's embarrassed. Maybe he's got something in his eye and he can't see to drive. He's going to crash. So help him, Lord, to get the thing out of his eye. Nope, you're in my way. I got stuff. I got, I, got, I got plans. I've got things to do I can't wait for. There's a life I want. There's a place I need to be. He says, I want to restore pure speech. I want you to call on the name of Yahweh with a single purpose, which is to love God and love people, not tell them to get out of your way. Jeremiah 29 says this. This is one of our favorite verses here or passages at FX Church. It says, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. So they've already been deported. The waiting is now begun. They have to wait 70 years. There's no way they're getting out of it. And here's what he says to these people that are waiting enslaved. That forget that they're even waiting for 70 years. He says, hey, here's what I want you to do. This is important. Listen up. Build houses and live in them. Radical. Oh, I had no idea I needed a house and I needed it to be built and I needed to live in it. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Oh, I had no idea people need to plant stuff and I need to eat. Man, I'm glad he told me because I would have just stopped eating. Take wives. Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. I just just can't imagine bringing children into this wicked world where we're free and protected by an army and nuclear weapons and we have plenty of food. 
I just can't imagine bringing people into this wicked world. They're enslaved. And the majority of their population was just slaughtered viciously. Most of their men became eunuchs and got their privates cut off. The ones that were left, God says, hey, you might want to multiply. Because I'm going to deliver a people out. So don't stop. He actually says it three times. Have children, have children, multiply, don't decrease. But they're so costly. What are you, what are you waiting for? Waiting for retirement? I can't have more kids, i got to retire. Okay. See, this is stuff that we should be struggling with. We should be asking questions of our heart. And even if not physical children, spiritual children that we're raising up. God keeps telling us to multiply spiritual children and physical children in the midst of a broken world. He goes on and he says, seek the welfare of the city I've deported you to. Bloomington? They're getting ready to do identity and identification at IU. Like, really? Seek the welfare? I mean, I'm good to go work and take some of their money, but their welfare? Like, help them? Yeah. Just like Peter said and Paul said, we're supposed to represent ourselves to Gentiles. It doesn't mean go along with what they do, but it does mean that you need to seek the welfare when there's nothing in it for you. You know, it was interesting. We were here serving, yes, on Friday. And the common thing that all of us recognized was that we were doing everything and no one else was really helping as a church. We were seeking the welfare of the Banneker and everyone here and all their staff were like not seeking the welfare of what needed to be done for the most part. There were some. But it was like, oh, praise the Lord. We did what we're supposed to do. Isn't that awesome? Praise God. He goes on, he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it has prosperity you'll prosper. I'm supposed to pray for wicked Babylonians who killed all my people? Yeah, pray for them. Pray that they'll prosper in the things of God. He goes on, he says, for this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, do not let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them. In other words, you want certain answers you're looking for and you go find them. Don't listen to them, he says, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is, what the, this is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. I will confirm my promise concerning you and I will restore you to this place. After you're done waiting, I'll finish it. And remember, everybody who heard this, everybody who heard this at this time because it was lost until Daniel found it, all of them died in captivity. None of them got attended to. None of them had their promise confirmed, and none of them were restored back to the promised land. They all died. So do you believe this, even if there's no benefit for you, and you're going to raise the next generation and the next generation to find the benefit in it? Because that's what we're called to do as we wait. Psalm 27, 13 says this, I am certain that I will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. We live in the land of the dead. Someday I'm going to see the full goodness of God. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous. Wait for the Lord. 
37.7, be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the man who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger and give up your rage. Don't be agitated. It can only bring harm. I need help with that one. Isaiah 40.30, youths may faint and grow weary. Front row. And young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint in a new body, in a new heaven, on a new earth. On this side of eternity, it's a constant process of being faint, picking yourself up, and waiting as God says to wait. Titus 2 says this, For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godliness and worldly lust and live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Say these things and encourage and and rebuke people who argue with all authority and let no one disregard you. Because you're a prophet, you're a priest, you're a prince, and you're a judge. The Bible says we're going to judge the angels one day. They're going to be paraded in front of us, and we're going to be the ones that say eternal damn fire forever or eternal bliss forever in heaven. I love that there are so many indications of how we should wait. James 5, therefore, brothers, be patient. Wait until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. He's talking about life here, the early life and the late life. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. I guarantee you the Lord's coming is near for you. In light of human history, your life's very nearly done. It's near. It may be near as in he's going to come back for everybody. It's nearer than it was yesterday. 2 Peter 3, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, like Zephaniah said they would be, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the earnest or as you wait and earnestly desire the coming day of God. The heavens will be on fire and will be dissolved because of it. That's what Zephaniah said. And the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for the new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found at peace with him without spot or blemish. Wait. Zephaniah says this again. Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will then restore pure speech to the peoples so that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh and serve him with a single purpose. You can call on the name of Jesus. His name means Yahweh saves. Whenever you say Jesus, you're saying Yahweh save me. You're calling on his name. And there's one single purpose. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the purpose. It's all about me. 
And we need to focus on that single purpose and then order our lives around his word, not our desires, not what we're waiting for and what we want and are consumed by, but to set that off and say, God, I will wait. And while I wait, I'm not going to be distracted for what I'm, by what I'm waiting for. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to lean into you. I'm going to lean into your people. Can I just tell you, you're going to fail at this. Read the Bible. God's people constantly failed. And God kept coming to deliver. And Jesus says he'll do the same. And that's why in Romans 7.24, Paul writes this about himself. The apostle Paul, the man, writes, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh, to the law of sin. As I wait, I so want to obey God in every area, but this flesh keeps getting in my way. But thanks be to Jesus who gave his flesh, who waited and came and told us, and all the people in the Old Testament were saved by looking forward, waiting and looking forward to the day when Jesus came. The people, when Jesus came, they were waiting for Jesus to be the Messiah and pay the price for them, and all of history waits for him to come again. It's always been a waiting game. And he gives us the confidence to know that, yes, I know you feel wretched, That's why I came. I've told the story. I've laid it all out so that you can count the cost and believe that it's worth it. So wait, but wait well. And you may not receive the benefits that this earth has to offer. You may come to the end and like Jesus, there's three people at the foot of your cross, at the foot of your hospital bed. That's it. And Jesus says, that's okay. Because there's a daddy father that's right there the whole time who we're going to see face to face forever and ever. Jesus says that's what it's about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, this is a hard message in our culture. When everything around us is clamoring, don't wait. You deserve. You're entitled. Get it now. When all we've been taught is to be frustrated when we don't get what we want, and then to leverage everything we can to get what we want. We're even told that we're losers if we don't leverage everything to get the things we want. Father, forgive us for chasing that forbidden fruit all the time. When there's a world around us, there's a great relationship around us with you and with others that can make you known and give you glory. That we can be praising you instead of being distracted by what we don't have. Lord, you want us to cast our cares upon you. You want us to come to you, but you want us to trust you with it. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning for my heart, for those here. And for those who don't know you, they've never had this relationship with you. They've they've lived a life of just chasing what they want and following what they want and getting what they want. Or they've lived a life sacrificing and not getting anything that they want. And they're miserable. I pray they'd see that it's wait for you. Wait for me. And so, Father, I pray that they would come to you and surrender their life, believing that they can wait and that you'll give them the power and the Holy Spirit to wait with joy and strength. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing to change hearts. You took 12 men, a small group, and turned the world upside down. The crowds came, you gave hard teachings, and they left, and then you built with what was left. And so I give you the praise and the glory. 
And Lord, may we be your people who wait on you and declare your praises through our actions and through our lips of who you are in your name. Amen.